we love you, and we ask you to open our eyes to your word now as we open it together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. So good to be with you this morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to open up the text uh, with you this morning. If you would, please turn in your copy to 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 11 this morning. So let me invite you uh, to do that. I wonder, uh, did anyone else watch any of the Winter Olympics this year? A little bit, yeah, a few of you, right? I, I didn't watch a lot of it, but one of the events that I was intrigued by was cross-country skiing. And of course, cross-country skiing is one of those endurance events that takes a lot of fortitude in order to participate in. And, and one of the things that you notice about watching a cross-country ski race is the reality that how you start the race isn't necessarily how you finish the race, Amen. All right, so, so see, everyone starts together. Nobody gets to cheat, right? Nobody gets a head start. But often, there's this group of athletes that, that, that has a strategy to jump out early in the race, and they take the lead. And, and here, they're, they're huffing and puffing, and they're working really hard, but it's exciting because they look around, and they see, well, well we're out in front of the pack. They're, they're winning, uh, theoretically. <laughs> but then you have those really elite athletes, those experienced ones who know exactly what to do. And they may hang back into the middle of the pack, maybe even towards the back of the pack, because they know if they ski too hard at the very beginning, uh, they they may exert too much physical energy, and they're not going to have what they need at the end of the race for what uh, racers call the kick. Okay, that final leg of the race where, where the, those that still have the energy can uh, burst past those who are, are languishing and they, they get to the finish line, okay? And see, it, it's how you... It's not how you start a race that makes you a winner, is it? It's how you finish. It's how you finish the race. And your kick has a lot to do with it. Now, I think a lot of us are pretty good at starting things. Amen? <laughs> We're pretty good at getting stuff rolling. You know, like at the turn of the year, we have these New Year's resolutions. We go on a diet. We exercise. We think, I'm watching too much TV. I've got to cut back on that. Maybe I'd be smarter if I read more, listen to more podcasts, whatever it would be. And we go for it. And for many of us, we're doing really good, you know, for the first couple of months. <laughs> Some of us, maybe the first couple of weeks, maybe, maybe others the first couple of hours. <laughs> it's, it's hard to keep up those new habits because inevitably, we, we face some adversity, we face some challenges, and, and, and things start to creep in on our time and our attention. We, maybe we get bored, uh, maybe some crisis happens, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves out of the race. We're sidelined, and we're frustrated. Now, Why is that such a consistent story for so many of us? Well, I think one of the reasons it's such a consistent story is that often we begin a new process without the end in mind, without a goal. We start, but we don't have a plan. And without a goal, without a prize on the other side of a finish line, it's so easy to veer off course. I mean, I I may have a desire to eat healthy, but if I don't have a goal, then when I'm filling on gas at Quick Trip and I walk inside there, those donuts are strategically placed, right? They're calling out to me. I love those things. If I don't have a goal, why not spend the three bucks and get six donuts? What a deal, right? Or whatever it is, you know what I mean. But church, if I have a goal, if there's a finish line, then I begin to realize that the donut is actually a distraction from that which really matters, that which I desire in even greater measure. And if I have that goal, then I'm more prone to stay on course. And, And church, it's this way in our Christian lives, isn't it? It's this way in our spiritual lives. We often, we often start out strong. We come to Christ. We have an encounter with Jesus. We begin to realize, wow, his grace actually covers me. And we're astounded. 
And we make new Christian friends and, 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 and we find that they're encouraging. These are, these are people that, that actually we want to be with. And we think, boy, how did I miss this all these years? I, f- I feel better. I, I, the ground is firmer underneath my feet. I, I have more self-esteem. I like this. And, and as we find ourselves working hard on our skis, we, we look around and we think, hey, I think I'm kind of winning this, this race. I mean, this is good. It's exhilarating. And yet, here's what often happens, right? If we're, if we're a high school kid, we, we go off to college, and, 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 and here we find ourselves, and there are people that are challenging our faith, whether it's a professor or a friend. There's distractions. There's, there's new opportunities. And, and something happens. We become discouraged, and, and all of a sudden, we, we realize, I haven't, I haven't been to church in two months. I, I'm neglecting Jesus. Or, or maybe we get married, and, and we're fall, we've fallen in love, and we're so convinced that this person is going to help me walk with Jesus all my days, and I'm going to help uh, her, okay? If, if you're me, I married a her, right, uh, Christy? But then you, you get into the, the, the whole thing, and, and maybe somebody gets sick, and, and, and you get derailed a bit. Maybe, maybe you realize that the people who said, you know what, marriage is hard, were actually telling the truth. <laughs> it's difficult. And what, what started out so invigorating has now become somewhat laborious, maybe even painful. And in those moments, whatever they are, and there's a whole host of things we could cite, right? We begin to identify with, with those elect exiles of the dispersion that we've been talking about in First Peter. Those men and women of the first century who were pushed to the fringes of society and who, before they knew it, moved from what, what was once so invigorating, so, so encouraging, to now what was becoming quite costly. And when that happens, we, we start to think, well, if, if I don't think a certain way anymore, if I don't feel a certain way anymore, if this isn't as exciting as it once was, then maybe I wasn't on the right path all along. And in this slippery slope of what we call deconstruction, it's a popular word, uh, begins. And as our feet begin to veer off course, our eyes begin to follow. And pretty soon we've, we've forgotten, why, forgotten why we started skiing in the first place. And friends, this is why Peter concludes the main body of his letter in the way that he does. We're going to see it here in a minute. He, he realizes that some of the stuff that he's been teaching the exiles has landed hard. Anybody felt that way through this series? I mean, who likes to think about suffering, right? Who likes to think about being in exile, being ostracized, all these things? It it lands hard sometimes. And you know what? Peter gets it. And he knows the human propensity to say, I'm not sure I want that. If that's what the Christian life is, I'm not so sure. And so with great wisdom, great discernment, Peter beckons his readers. Hey, look over there. Do you see that? That's the finish line. It's time for your kick. Don't stray now. Don't give up. See, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. And with that, we read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Listen to this. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) Now, 
Uh, Church, I want you to look with me at the beginning of this passage uh, again in verse 7. Peter says this. It's it's a phrase that that often gets repeated throughout the scriptures. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, the end is near, says Peter. All right, the end is near. And and it's interesting, uh, throughout history, the church has actually faced some criticism for this claim. All right. I mean, the critics say that clearly, if, if Christ hasn't yet returned after 2,000 years, the Bible's gotten it wrong. The, the end most certainly wasn't near when Peter wrote these words. 2,000 years is a long time, all right? You ever heard that? Well, church, we have to understand what Peter means here when he says the end is, is at hand. Uh, and he means, I, I think, two things. First, Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension ushered in what we now call the last days. And there's biblical precedent for that. David Helm explains. He says, according to the Bible, the end has already begun. It came with Christ's resurrection and will be fully consummated upon his return. We live in the end times now, according to Helm. It's, it started at the resurrection. It'll be finished when he comes back. Therefore, we're in the final stages of history. We're living in the last days. As, as Peter argued in his opening chapter, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. We covered that in chapter 1, verse 20. Indeed, the end is at hand. The end is near. Okay? We're already in the last days, church, according to the scripture. But also, uh, remember what Peter's going to say in his second letter. Maybe you've heard this before. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Church, here's the thing. <laughs> We're in the last days and Jesus is coming soon. But, but soon for us, as temporal creatures, as those who are limited by time and space, is different than soon for God. Because God exists outside of time and space. God created time and space. God isn't limited by time in the same way that we are. We have limits. God is, is unlimited, all right? And see, church, our job isn't to know the exact timing of Christ's return. That, that's not what the biblical prophecies are for. I mean, if they were, wouldn't that kind of be like when, when Christy and I maybe go out and, and, or we're gone for, you know, uh, now it's like we can be gone for two days. It's awesome. We have older kids. But, uh, uh, but, but we, we, we leave the house and we say to the kids, hey, would you just make sure to have the dishes cleaned up and, and kind of have your junk picked up off the floor? You know, your sweaty gym clothes. Don't leave them in the living room. All right. And, and so we leave and the kids say, well, what time are you going to be back? And we say, well, maybe 10 p.m., you know, something like that, 9, 9, whatever, whatever the time is. And, and, and it'd be like if our kids say, okay, perfect, 9 o'clock at 8.49, at 8.59, we're going we're gonna to pick up, right? Has that ever happened in your house? It happens in ours, and sometimes we catch them. We see it, right? Church, if we knew the exact timing of Christ's return, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be easy to think, you know, I'm just going to keep eating my donuts, I don't have to worry about this. It's comfortable. It's easy. I, sure, I know that I, I need to get my act together, but, but, but Jesus, is it's going to be a while, so we're good, right? I got time to clean up my act. 
Church, the prophecies don't exist to pinpoint the exact time of the events of the end times, but instead, they exist to encourage us to be ready. That's the, that's the impetus, the thrust. Whether you read the Old Testament prophets or you read the New Testament prophecies by the apostles, we're to be ready for the return of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself told a parable in, in Matthew chapter 25 about the ten virgins. And five of the virgins had their lamps filled with oil. They were trimmed. They were ready to go so that when the bridegroom came back, they'd be ready for him. But, but five of the virgins didn't. They didn't have enough oil. And so when the bridegroom returned, it was the five virgins who were ready that were invited into the, to the wedding feast. The other five were full of regret and remorse. And Jesus said in verse 13 of Matthew 25, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We're to be ready for Jesus coming. Are you ready, church? Is your house in order? <laughs> Are you waiting until 8.59 or whatever time? Church Peter wants us to be ready. He wants the exiles to be ready. He wants them to, to keep their eyes on the finish line. It's time for the kick. He wants that for us as well. The end is near. Therefore, we must pay attention to these things. Okay? So, so what do we pay attention to? Well, look at verse 7 here. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Two imperatives, one goal here. The exiles are to be self-controlled and sober-minded such that their prayer lives aren't hindered. Such that, that they maintain a healthy, vibrant, uh, communicative prayer life with God. And see, Peter understands, if you're going to reach the finish line, you're going to need some help, right? We're going to need some help. And friends, this, this is where the Christian worldview differs dramatically from that of a, a more secular humanist perspective. Uh, humanists are those who claim that the solution, the ultimate solution to humanity's problems can be found by looking within. By, by looking internally into that human resolve, that human spirit. And there are those who, who might see a finish line and, and presume that the ticket to get across that line comes from their own hard work, their own ingenuity. That if we just press in hard enough, if we all get our act together, we're, we're going to make it. We're going to find that utopia that we've all been dreaming about. We're going to have peace. Uh, we can make the world a better place. If, if we just uh, address climate change or economic disparities or racial, gender inequalities, etc., etc., we can fix the world. We can finally all get along. But, but friends, as noble as those aspirations may be, we've been pursuing that for a long time as a society, haven't we? And with the world continuing to struggle, I ask, how's that going? How are we doing on that? But on the other hand, a biblical worldview offers a different solution. Scott McKnight captures it. He says, I don't believe we have either the capacity, because we're sinners and limited, amen? <laughs> I don't believe we either have the capacity uh, or the technology, because science cannot change human nature, Amen? We don't have the capacity or the technology to bring this about by ourselves. However hard we work for justice and peace, and again, it's a noble thing. It's even a biblical thing to work for justice and peace. I'm not saying we're not to care, but ultimately only God can bring about the desired change. And so we work and we pray for God's intervention. May your kingdom come. <laughs> Church, we understand reaching the finish line is an exercise in trust and dependence on God. And we experience God's provision primarily through prayer. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, prayer, communion with God, is our best hope for reaching the finish line intact. And we recognize that if we don't tend to our prayer life, it's, it's just like if we don't tend to our gardens, right? If you don't tend to your garden, uh, there's going to be weeds that rise up to choke out the nutrients that are necessary for bearing fruit. If we don't water our gardens, there, there's not going to be enough sustenance for that fruit to develop and grow. Church, in the same way, if we don't tend to our prayer life, we're going to struggle to bear fruit in the Christian life. God has designed us this way to need him in order to bear fruit. And so how does Peter say that, that we're to tend to this prayer life? Well, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. What's the first thing that happens when, when life starts to get crazy for some of us? You know, those, those pinnacle moments, maybe it's a, a child who walks into the bedroom and says, mom and dad, I need to talk to you. I, I've been arrested. You know, maybe it's that spouse who, who says, I've had enough, I want a divorce. Maybe it's that boss who says, you're fired. Pick up your things and leave. Maybe it's that business competitor that says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to sue you. You better get ready. So often in those moments, we, we lose our minds. We panic. We start grasping for, for anything we think can give us that sense of, of, of calm or equilibrium or control. We, we, we might respond to that spouse who says, I want a divorce and say, well, fine, if you, if you walk out now, you can never come back. We give an ultimatum. Or, or we threaten our, our business competitor. Yeah, you're going to sue me? Well, you better get ready because I'm coming after you and your family. We, we freak out at our kids. We, we make it a disaster. We try to grip the situation and to bend it to fit our expectations. But that, but that as we know, only makes it worse, doesn't it? Peter says what we really need to do is take a deep breath. And on the exhale, to bring our needs to God to bring our emotions in check, to get to that space where we're thinking clearly. And if we can't get to that space where we're thinking clearly to cry out to God, to ask him to bring us there, to bow our heads, to ask God to do what only God can do. And see, church, it's, it's a fallacy to think that we can manufacture our own solutions in life's most intense moments. I mean, sure, we, we might be able to put band-aids on things with the best of them, right? But contrary to what my kids when they were three and four years old thought, band-aids don't actually heal, <laughs> right? Ultimately, we know that, that our only hope to endure is found in the strength that God provides. Friends, the end of all things is at hand. The finish line is, is right there. So be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Don't, don't freak out. Don't panic. Don't self-medicate. We do that sometimes, don't we? We self-medicate with, with, with drugs or with alcohol, with junk food, with porn, with sex, with, with whatever we're prone to. And instead, Peter says, don't do that. Be sober-minded. Instead, pray. Tend to your prayer life. 
Go to God as a source of your strength, and, and he'll move you toward that finish line. Now, uh, listen to what Peter says next, verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, I want you to notice the language here. Peter says, above all, above everything else that you could do, this is the thing. Of all the things to think about as you keep nearing that finish line, this is the most important. Keep loving one another earnestly. (laughs) Not just once in a while. Not not just when you feel like it. Not just those with whom you quote unquote click, right? And not just in cursory form. No, love earnestly. Love deeply. (laughs) Love what I. Howard Marshall describes as loving in full stretch. Okay, I love how he describes this. Listen to this. He says, this love will be stretched to the limit by the demands made on it. Let us remind ourselves that Christian love means caring for other people and their needs and that such care will be accompanied by a growing affection for them. Many people are prepared to care for others. They're less ready to have affection for them and to demonstrate it. It requires, a, it requires love at full stretch to do this. And see, it's fascinating, church. Yes, we're meant to draw on God's strength to reach the end. But but you know how God most often distributes that strength? Have you ever thought about that? Look around the room. (laughs) He distributes his strength to us through each other. As we demonstrate the love of God to each other, we feast on the strength of God. We're strengthened in what God provides through each other. When we love each other at full stretch, we extend the grace of God that leads us across that finish line. Turns out we need each other, church. (laughs) I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. That's God's design. Now notice Peter says the specific reason for for loving one another here is that that love covers a multitude of sins. (laughs) I love that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Church, we're to cover each other with love. We're to have each other's backs with love. And that doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with the Beatles who said that all you need is love, right? (laughs) God's standard of holiness remains crucially important. It remains critical. But it does mean that when we lead with love, we're more patient with each other. We're more prone to forgive each other when we wrong each other. We're able to overlook our personality differences, our different backgrounds, our varied experience, and we're able to serve together in common mission. Karen Job says the downward spiral is broken when someone in loving forbearance breaks the cycle of acting on hard feelings and doing wrong. When you wrong somebody here in this church, (laughs) my prayer is that you would, and and you probably will, because we do that, right? We're prone to sin. We're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're prone to leave the God I love. We, we, We do that to each other sometimes. But the calling for us is to say, I got your back. I forgive you. I love you. I'm covering that. Sure, you made a mistake. It doesn't affect my love at full stretch for you. Church, we got to cover each other with love. <laughs> we got to break the cycle. It's crucial for crossing the finish line. And Peter says that, that we cover each other with love in several ways. Look at verse 9. Here he says, First, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Church, we love one another earnestly by demonstrating hospitality. In the first century, the, the church didn't have a building to meet in, okay? Uh, they, they, they just didn't have it. They didn't have the resources. They were so young in, in their process, they weren't able to build buildings yet at that time. And so the church was dependent on the generous hospitality of those who had homes large enough for the church to gather in. And when the church came to those homes, the expectation was there's going to be food, there's going to be enough to drink, uh, they're going to provide that hospitality, hospitality that was necessary for the church to flourish. And on top of that, a lot of the pastors, a lot of the preachers there didn't have a home in the community in which they were preaching. And so that, that person, or maybe it was somebody else, had to provide a place for that pastor, that preacher, to stay. The church was dependent on the hospitality of its members, of its people. And of course, this played out very early in Acts chapter 2, right at the inception of the church. The church broke bread in their homes, and they shared together in common that which was necessary for the flourishing of the church. Now, we we live in a slightly different era today, don't we? We we have this beautiful building here, praise God. uh, we, we, we have uh, pastors and, and staff who, who actually have their own homes in the community in which we live. Praise God. And yet, church, we're still called to demonstrate hospitality to one another. And to do it without grumbling. <laughs> church, when we open our homes to invite somebody over for dinner, or when we volunteer to host a growth group, or, or when we find somebody uh, on the lobby that, that we know hasn't, it just doesn't look like they've been here before and we, we engage them in conversation and we make them feel welcome. We're extending hospitality to those people. We're demonstrating it. And the fallacy is that they have to have this big, expensive, immaculately clean home in order to do this, right? I mean, a lot of us think that. I don't have the right house. I don't have the right space. If people came over here, they'd be embarrassed. They don't want to come to my place. But I love what David Helm writes about E. Stanley Jones, a famous preacher. Isn't it a cool preacher name, E. Stanley Jones? A. Ray Cavernon doesn't really work, okay? But, but E. Stanley Jones, that, that's a name, right? E. Stanley Jones experienced hospitality while he was ministering in, in the mountain region of Kentucky. He was pre- preaching in a schoolhouse. And he says this, he writes, he says, At the schoolhouse, I was invited to stay with a man and his wife. And when I arrived, I saw there was one bed. The husband said, you take the far side. And then he got in. (laughs) And then his wife on the other side. I I turned my face to the wall as they dressed, and they stepped out, likely into the cold, while I dressed. That was real hospitality. I've slept in palaces. But the hospitality of that one-bed home is the most memorable and the most appreciated. Church, you don't have to have a palace to demonstrate hospitality. You just have to be willing. You just have to be willing. We're to cover each other with love by demonstrating hospitality. But not only that, look at verse 10. Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, the the word gift here and the word grace actually come from the same root word in the Greek, okay? It's it's the word charis. It's a word we've probably talked about here before, C-H-A-R-I-S. And charis is a word that demonstrates God's kind provision for us in our need. 
Okay? And, and here we see it. God gifts his people with gifts so that they can serve the needs of the people around them with those gifts that God has given in order that they can serve the needs of their community. And see, as we've already acknowledged, our pursuit of the finish line is a communal experience. That's where we differ, perhaps, from cross-country or other long-distance racing. Now, you really smart people know that, that sometimes uh, racers work together. I don't know how that works. I'm not a long-distance racer, okay? But, but, but here in, in, in the faith, in the Christian community, we need each other. God gives us each other to help us move toward that finish line. God gives us varied gifts, not all the same gifts, but varied gifts, so that we can serve one another. Uh, my gifts are different than your gifts. Praise God. We're different. We don't have to sit around wishing, I wish I had his gifts, or I wish I had her gifts. No, God has given us exactly the gifts that he meant to in order for us to fulfill what he's called us to. We're simply responsible for stewarding those gifts. And in verse 11, uh, Peter offers two categories for the kind of gifts that God gives. Uh, Look at verse 11 here, the first part of it. Peter says, uh, these are, this is our calling to be good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Hey, there's, there's two categories of gifts here. And the first category is, is the speaking gifts. The, the verbal gifts. Paul lists these kind of gifts in, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, other places. Uh, things such as apostleship, encouragement evangelism, tongues, the interpretation of tongues, shepherding, prophecy, teaching, and others. And we don't have time to do a deep dive into the spiritual gifts uh, today. I know it's already daylight savings and you got here, so that's awesome. (laughs) But here's the thing. Scott McKnight says, if, if someone's called on to speak in the presence of believers, that person ought to take the opportunity so seriously that the words spoken be considered with reverence. You know, church, we we take seriously the speaking of God's word here, the teaching of God's word. And though we recognize that that our preaching uh, may be vulnerable to error, I hope it's not very often, but our preaching is different than reading God's word. God's word is inerrant. God's word is infallible. Every single word from the text is inspired by God. Amen? Okay. My my preaching, you can can question me on my preaching. (laughs) I, I challenge you to question God's word. We don't do that because it's inerrant. Now we can have questions about God's word. I feel like I've got to go on a rabbit trail here, but you, you get me, right? right? But church, we're so committed to the truth of God's word, we, we dare not treat the teaching of it lightly. We dare not preach or teach something that isn't true because we know that, that only as we strive toward the finish line with God's word in our hands are we going to get there. God's word is our source. God has given himself to us through his word. We need it. Now the other category uh, that Peter reflects here is the serving category, serving gifts. And, And Paul talks about these as well. Gifts such as hospitality, of course, we just talked about that, but, but, but also creativity, administration, mercy, giving, healing, service, etc. And, and by the way, uh, we're not limited to just one gift. We're not necessarily called to have all the gifts. Scripture's pretty clear about that, right? right? The hand doesn't say to the, the eye, I, you know, I wish I had yours. And No, no, we, we act out of what God has given us. 
And, and church, here's the thing. Most of you will never stand up here and preach a sermon in front of the congregation, right? That's okay. <laughs> and many of you will, will never teach a class or maybe even lead a growth group. Although I think perhaps a lot of you could do a really great job at it. So, you know, get, get ready down the road, all right? <laughs> but God has uniquely supplied you, each one of you, with exactly what is necessary to serve him faithfully in this community and beyond. God's given you exactly what he meant to. And each one of you has spiritual gifts if you're in Christ that God has equipped you with. And so by, by giving generously, perhaps generosity is one of the gifts that God has given you. By, by making food for those in need, hospitality, service, by offering a listening ear, d- discernment perhaps, by swinging a hammer, turning a wrench, you can demonstrate your commitment to, to the ways of God. And here we express that as loving God, growing people, serving our city, and reaching the world. And church, here's the thing. Both speaking and serving are equally dependent on God's gracious provision and are equally important in God's sight. And so if you happen to have a gift that's more public, a, a gift that, that, that ends up being in front of more people, be careful. And I preach this to myself as much as anybody. Be careful. What you have isn't anything of you. It's what God has given you. Don't puff yourself up. The question for us is, will we keep an open hand with our gifts? Will, will we keep an open hand if we will We're going to have the privilege, not only of crossing the finish line ourselves, but we're going to have the privilege with open hands of being available to God for the purpose of bringing others with us. (laughs) What greater privilege is there than that? And in the end, verse 11 says this. He says, we do this. We keep our hands open with our gifts in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church, our aim as followers of Jesus Christ is that God is glorified in all things. The the famous Westminster Catechism captures it perhaps better than any other place. It says a man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the finish line, church. There's a day coming when Jesus returns and we'll get to fall at his feet and we'll get to participate in his glory and we'll get to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the end. That's the goal. That's what I want to hear. I trust you as well. Church, when we tend our prayer lives by, by demonstrating self-control and, and sober-mindedness, when, when we cover each other with love, extending hospitality and stewarding our gifts through our speaking and our serving, we find ourselves reflecting God's glory in ways that honor Him and that make a huge impact in the world around us. Church, our, our desire above all else, even if it costs us suffering, is that our God be glorified. So stand firm, church. Jesus is coming. We're on the home stretch. It's time for the kick. Don't pull off a quick trip and buy those donuts. In fact, pay at the pump, right? Eye on the prize. And may God be glorified in it all. Let's pray. Lord, I... 
I want to acknowledge that what I've just shared uh, could sound to some like a works-based salvation. Like somehow that, that finish line has everything to do with what we do. And Lord, before you, I want to acknowledge that our salvation in you is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And our salvation is wrapped up in the person of Jesus who covers our shame with his blood, his righteousness. How deep the Father's love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And though we were lost in our sin, God, you saw fit to save us up out of our sin. To to make your righteousness our righteousness. To take our sin on you so that we can stand here as those who've been forgiven and free. And yet, God, you never meant for us to coast to that finish line because you gave us a job to do. Otherwise, Lord, you might as well have raptured us right at the beginning, just taking us up to heaven, but but you didn't do that. And, And with Paul, we agree, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. We acknowledge that to be with you is better, but here we have a mission, we have a purpose. And it's to be salt and light in the world around us. And so, Lord, as we move toward that finish line, may we move with hands that are open, with hearts that are open. May we keep loving one another earnestly, covering each other's sin with grace, with love. May we demonstrate hospitality to each other. And may we serve one another and serve you with the gifts that you've given us, whether it be speaking or in serving, God. And in that... May your church be built up. Not just, not just here at Cornerstone, but, but your church across this city, across this region, across this globe. May your church advance for the glory in the name of Jesus Christ so that when you come, we're a people who are ready. God, make us ready. We love you and we trust you with all of this. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.